Legends of Media Research is a podcast series featuring interviews with the media industry's leading researchers, where we go behind the scenes, sharing stories from their greatest achievements and challenges. Brought to you by Media Science, the leader in media and advertising innovation research. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information about Media Science. But for now, I'm your host, Media Science CEO, Dr. Dwayne Veron. Welcome to another exciting episode of Legends of Media Research. We're really excited today because we have as our guest, Dr. Horace Dipp, who for over 40 years was at NBC. At, at the end of his career there, he was SVP of Strategic Insights and Innovation, and he left NBC to retire, but got roped into this gig at the ARF as EVP of research at the ARF, a, a role he's been in now for over a decade, for 11 years. Horst, welcome to Legends of Media Research. Thank you, Dwayne. It's an honor, and I listened to a lot of the podcasts, and that was very inspiring, and I'm really glad to be part of this. Well, we're thrilled to have you today. You really are a legend in our industry, Horace. A lot of people are really looking forward to hearing your backstory because they've seen you up on stage or they've seen you here and there, but they don't know what your story is. So let's get right into it. Horace, you, of course, those who know you know that you hail from Germany. How did you go from Germany to ending up in the United States? And how did you end up in the media industry? Well, it's really quite interesting for me to sort of think back on that because it started really, really early. I was studying sociology at the Free University in Berlin, or that time in West Berlin in the 60s, you know, when Kennedy was there and all of that. And I had traveled to the U.S. and I really liked it. So I applied to, for a scholarship. And sort of from an academic point of view, there was a real good reason for that is because to get a Ph.D. at that time in Berlin, you had to learn Greek for God knows what reason. And so I wouldn't have to do that if I was getting a PhD in sociology uh, in the U.S. So I did get a scholarship to Columbia University, and I was really excited to get that scholarship for really reasons other than studying, because I really liked the idea of living in New York. I had always loved American pop culture, you know, American movies and TV shows, and also advertising. In fact, I had a really bizarre, great interest in advertising and propaganda at a very early age, you know, when I was a teenager. So, for example, I sort of wrote a high school play, and it was like a little vignettes that were interrupted by commercials. And it's something that today I would call was ads that were context aligned. So it was at the time when in Germany, advertising was tightly regulated and all of that. So America was like the land of advertising and everything. But it was really, you know, pop culture and sort of the American sense of humor and all of that. Germans struck me as incredibly serious and, and oh, should I say, uh, a little bit depressed for good reason. So anyway, so I loved coming over here and I was at Columbia and within months, I got myself a part-time job at NBC. So the job at NBC was part-time when I was going to school at Columbia and studying sociology for my PhD. And it was hired for a study on television violence. It was a social research department, and there was a deal that NBC had made with senators to do a, spend a million dollars on research to explore whether television content causes real-life violence in children. 
So I was hired for that job. And while I was there, I did my dissertation. And then in 76, uh, was my PhD. They hired me full time. So I started at NBC working in social research on this violent study and other regulatory issues. And then I got involved in children's programs because my boss at the time, also for regulatory reasons, founded what we called a social science advisory panel. So we hired academics who were specialists in child psychology and so on, who devised on scripts for Saturday morning cartoons. Well, it started with the Smurfs because we had just bought the Smurfs. And the Smurfs are a bunch of little blue cartoon characters with one, one female character. And the female character in the original script was a very sexy, coquette kind of character who would get the Smurfs into trouble all the time. So not exactly <laughs> a good female So our head of children's program was a woman, a black woman, actually, who thought this was really not very good and would probably not please the, the little girls who we wanted in the audience. So we had these meetings in L.A., and then I discovered L.A., and I loved L.A. I got a driver's license because I wasn't even able to drive at that time. And we would have these meetings. So why would you need to drive? You were living in New York before then, right? <laughs> New York. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in Berlin. And, and, you know, I grew up poor. We couldn't afford a car. So all of this was dream job in America, having fun with traveling to L.A. and, and discovering all of that. And doing really very interesting work on this children's programs because, yeah, if you think about it, we were trying to insert pro-social values into children's programs, which is not as easy as you might think because, let me give you an example. We had, after we got this Merced all emancipated and, and, and a really good role model and the show got a 30 share, no, a 30 rating. The guy like a got no share, but it meant 30 that every rating. Wow. That's like year old was watching that show. Yeah, yeah. Those were the days, right? And presumably you had it more a, female Smurfs in the script by the time it got on air. See, that was the interesting thing. Right? We couldn't really do that because we had to stay true to the original script that was, I think they then developed it and had Smurf babies, but most of the time it was just a Smurfette. But beyond that, what became then so interesting is that the academic said, violence is not really the big issue for us, but the role of women and minorities is. And we had like a seminar in the 80s now. We had like seminars for the writers about, you know, minorities. But we also did research on children. We found, for example, that a Mexican character who in the first scripts was saying caramba every two minutes, once we made him, you know, proper, whatever, none of the children recognized him as being a Mexican anymore. So we were trying to show, have a minority in there, but wouldn't recognize as a minority. But we were up against something. I mean, there was a black character in the, in the show who was described as shiftless and lazy. The uh, writers from Hanna-Barbera were all very, very lily white. And so we had some interesting challenges there. It was also a great learning experience. One good thing also was that NBC Research was independent. We were not reporting to sales. And our role really was very explicitly to tell them internally what was really going on. 
the research very often did not go beyond that. But for example, for the violence study, there was actually a commitment by management that the results would be released even if we found that NBC programs caused real children to be violent. Well, it turned out that that wasn't the case, but still, we also did the study on supposedly soap opera suicides triggering real-life suicides. And again, we worked with a great academic advisor, uh, Ron Kessler, who's now at Harvard, to kind of take apart what was going on there. And it turned out that there was a professor in San Diego who had a class uh, on suicides after he'd done a really, really remarkable study where he found that when Mary Monroe killed herself, that actually caused, I think, several hundred suicides afterwards. So the number of suicides actually went up after Marilyn Monroe killed herself. But then he went on with his classes, and they tried correlations between events and suicides. And every 20th time that they looked at a correlation, they actually found one. Well, if you do that with a 0.95 probability, after 20 times, you are likely to find something. So at one point, he found that there was uh, suicide after suicides in soap operas. Th that was, you know, concerning for NBC management and the good people at NBC who were doing soap operas. Well, it actually turned out that the guy got his dates mixed up. And the real finding actually was that there was a slight increase in suicides before a lot of uh, soap operas aired that had a suicide story. So there was wow. no relationship. That's pure, amazing. Pure coincidence. What an amazing story, Horst. I guess it's one of those cautionary tales warning us about not jumping to conclusions. Now, in the 80s, things became, again, very interesting because we did research on boycotts, what we now call brand safety. I was asked to evaluate commercial claims, which is something that this is like don't... when some social issue has popped up and people say they're going to ban the advertisers if they put their ads inside a program. And so there's pressure on the network to stop a show because, you know, there's this pressure on advertisers to to withdraw their support for the program. Yeah, and the moral majority was very active in that. Uh, we did some really uh, good research with Roper at the time and finding out you know, what the sentiment really was. And we found that it was a really very, very small minority of viewers who objected to programs, that they often wrote postcards even uh, about the pros shows, even though they never seen the show, but they were just asked. And, and we, we did a study, which was fascinating, where we found that people who wrote us a postcard about boycotting an advertiser, that a third of those people never used the product, the third had it in their uh, kitchen right now, and one third did, in fact, boycott it. So two-thirds of people who actually did the step of actively announcing the boycott that didn't actually boycott. So that was really interesting. And then I was asked to do research on evaluating commercial claims for advertising for products that were advertised. And I don't know if your audience is aware of that. The networks had, and I guess they still have, these departments on these people, broadcast standards departments that look at programs, but also look at commercials. And the reason they do that is because it gets a legal hassle and a lot of complications if, let's say, Pepsi says they're better than Coke. 
And we did, in fact, have that during the Cola Wars of the 80s. And I was in these meetings, you know, where Coke was saying that Pepsi did bad research because the Coke was too warm in the studies and I had to evaluate these things. And it was really fascinating. So here I was, this, you know, this guy from Germany and Hebrew National was saying that they had to adhere to a higher authority with their hot dogs. And so I had to learn kosher law. So I was like studying all these kosher laws. And my conclusion was, well, they could put fillers in there. They can't put meat from cows that fall off a roof, but they can put artificial fillers into their hot dogs. And it was that kind of research that was submitted in support of claims. So I actually did learn that at the time, Tide really did wash wider than most competing detergent, which is very interesting information, not just from a business point of view, but also in your private life if you do your own laundry. And so it was, it was quite an interesting experience. Now, Horst, of course, when the 80s came around, I think that's when NBC got its big contract with the Olympics, right? And that led to you guys doing the famous billion-dollar lab. <laughs> Maybe you could tell us a little well, bit about all that Olympic research that you did over the years. Yeah, I, I don't think there was a B involved, but I think it, it was a million dollars. I tell you why it was so fascinating is because we didn't do advertising research, but we also did research about the drivers of the Olympics. My boss at the time was Alan Wurzel, and he was interviewed. He was one of your legends. So I really recommend listening to that. And I remember him saying, you know, the really interesting thing is we have these trials on the air with these really incredible athletes doing God knows what. And we get a one rating. Then we put this exactly the same person doing exactly the same things in on the Olympics, and we get a 20 rating. So there is something about the Olympic Games. And you do the research. And that's always been my experience. I love research because it shows you things that you don't know and tells you things about society and how people think in, in ways that often surprise you. And this was a real surprise because what we learned through our research is that for the biggest part of the audience, the Olympics is not really a sports event. There wow, that's really interesting. Men, right? There are a lot of men in the audience who are very focused on the sports aspect. And most of the commentators and so on, you know, talk about the sports aspect. But the biggest portion of the audience are women. And most of them are women over 40. And most of the entire audience is parents. And one of the strongest motivators and one of the strongest emotional experiences during the Olympics comes from a sort of a identification with the kids who are doing the sports as being your kids and thinking about how their parents feel and how you would feel if your daughter or your son after training for 15 years, 20 years, almost every single day, is now either going to win a gold medal or maybe a silver or bronze or nothing. It'll be, you know, glory or defeat. And in, often this happens in 10 seconds, right? <laughs> in a, or in, in two minutes, you know? And their identification with these young women and, and men as sort of their kids is one of the strongest motivator. 
And then, of course, there's the national pride kind of thing. And what was sort of nice was to, to learn that for most people, it wasn't really just rooting for America. There was a real sort of feeling that it must be incredible for a smaller nation that we haven't even heard of and could never point to on a globe or on a map that sends like a couple of uh, kids out there and they win a medal. And that's wonderful. Kind of like you know, the... As um, long as we are not... What was the, the cool runnings, the Jamaica bobsled team? Like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, right. Those kind of things, right? And as long as America is number one, God bless them all. And those were some of the things that came out of the research. A little bit later, also fascinating, I think, was when we found that the ratings for the younger demos were sort of slipping. We did some research with younger people, and we found that there was some sense of these Olympic athletes are a little bit weird because they do it for the glory and not for the money. And you see them at the Olympics, and then you don't hear from them again. You know, that sort of thing. So they really changed the coverage to make the athletes more relatable as humans. So they would show these, these guys having 2,000-calorie breakfasts and, and, and stuff like that. So anyway, the other part, of course, was the advertising. And the one thing that, you know, we, we still wor work with today, and, and Dwayne, I think you will do a presentation or uh, you have done research that will be presented in two weeks at the Audience Science about context effects. Well, I had a lesson in context effects during the Olympics, which is that the context of the Olympics made advertising work so much better if it was aligned, if it was well aligned. And here is what we did. We did all this research, and then we went to the big sponsors and told them about the research, and many of them listened. And that's, for example, how Procter & Gamble came out with uh, one of the most successful campaigns they ever did during the Olympics about growing up and so on. And McDonald's did something with Olympic babies and, and what have you. So that was really, really fascinating. And it went on year after year. And I am proud to say that I saw that in the most recent Olympic research that NBC did, they still use some of the same questions that we devised years ago. And it was a great experience. So it's interesting because when you were talking about the advertisers in the Olympics, it, it sounds mm -hmm. like the research that you guys did actually informed the development of, of their ad creative ultimately. It certainly did. And we sort of sold this as one of the benefits of, of a big sponsorship package that we would share all that information with them. And, and my boss at the time, Dick Chiaroni, would like travel to a lot of these companies' headquarters with the Olympic sales team and gave these presentations. And he was a very good presenter and got very, very positive response. And the advertisers got it. You know, they, they understood and uh, they understood that an Olympic ad does not have to be about sports. Amazing, amazing. Who, who went the sort of patriotic way and others, a lot of them went in terms of excellence. It's because that was one of the big elements. Now, Horst, you were on deck when this thing called the internet came along. What was that like <laughs> at NBC? I mean, especially in your role, you had a forecasting role, right? So. You know, people would have been calling you on your phone asking, what's this internet thing? I, I remember one of my colleagues saying to me, yeah, I don't think we're going to have a job in five years. Well, that particular person <laughs> went uh, to another network and had another 15 years. 
Yeah, it was a really interesting time because at first there was a sort of sense of what the hell, you know, this is not going to change anything. But then all this talk about the electronic superhighway and all of these gurus predicting the end of television, you know, people are starting to get nervous. And you may recall, or your listeners may recall, that sort of around 1995, there was a really widespread belief that this electronic superhighway would replace passive television and turn us into active creators. And everybody would sort of like being able to be more creative and and this passivity of television would go away. Well, so the research that I was involved in kind of predicted that that was not going to happen. And that's sort of under my, hey, horse got this right headline. So I was trying to convince my coworkers and management who were a little bit skeptical. They thought, oh, this guys and these research guys, they've been with television, they love television, and they're probably a little bit biased, you know? But let's hear what they have to say. So, so they predict that people have a strong interest in video and passive entertainment. They like, still like our TV shows. They also like long-term. And I don't know whether I came up with the term video snack or Alan did, but anyway, so we used the word video snacking to sort of account for this popularity of YouTube. This was like a new thing that, that arrived. I also predicted that there would not be a sudden change. And when I look at sort of my forecast from those days, what's sort of striking is that a lot of the things that happened that I said, no, no, this is not going to happen. It in fact happened, but they happened 15 to 20 years later. But at the time, a lot of people, a lot of gurus were saying this happened like within five years. This is going to happen really, really soon. What I did get wrong was <laughs> the ability to have video on the phone and the fact that a lot of people and a lot of young people actually like watching things on the small screen. To be honest, I still don't understand that. But that's why we do research, you know, because other people are not like you. And that's why we need to do research so we can figure out what other people are up to and what they prefer. So the technological changes, of course, you know, have like a really, really big impact. One real crucial element in all of this was the DVR. Because today we think about the internet, but in those days... The DVR was also seen as something that would kill television. Because again, the assumption was people hate commercials. They will all record everything on the DVR and fast forward to the commercial. Well, that didn't happen. And so we survived that. And there was another fascinating thing. At the time, Seinfeld was the number one show. We did an analysis with Steve Coffey of his internet usage data. And what I found was that internet usage took a dip on Thursday from 9 to 9.30. It actually went down, documenting that at that time, internet use was, was going down. So I guess I can tell this now because it's you know, a long time ago, but we found it internally and told NBC management about this time. And I was thinking like, wow, isn't this a great story? They're going to use that about the power of television. No, no, Horst. This is not going anywhere. We're having contract negotiations with Seinfeld. The show is expensive as it is. They don't need to know that. 
So uh, that's uh, a little little story from. Uh, you know that reminds me, Horst, of a of a study that was done in London in the fifties, in the nineteen fifties. It's one of my favorite studies, where they looked at water usage. So this was actually done oh, with yes. the water the water plant to see how much water was being pumped through you know the pipes the volume of water being pumped in and they found that when commercials were on television <laughs> the the yeah, water no, volume think... in the sewage system skyrocketed because everybody was flushing their <laughs> toilets <laughs> yeah because, because they had these long commercial breaks yeah and in the US I think they found the same thing after I love Lucy was on so uh, it's yeah, a great it's great a, great it's era it's metric you know But you talked about Seinfeld. We should dive a little bit deeper on Seinfeld because you should tell us the story of the Seinfeld pilot. You know, one of the myths in the industry is people always say, oh, research is terrible. Creatives shouldn't listen to research. And one of the examples that people always use is they always say, look at that show Seinfeld. It tested horribly and look how successful it turned out to be. But there's actually more to the story than that. So maybe you can give us a little bit of the backstory on the, the pilot testing for Seinfeld. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Dwayne, because uh, I forgot to say that one of the most interesting things for me in my career at NBC, and one of the reasons I enjoyed working there for all this time was that I did get involved in program research. Now, to be fair, my colleagues were out in Burbank. They were doing the research in Burbank, but they often doing pilots even then. Uh, I got to fly out and help, help, you know, help them. I was not directly involved in the testing for Seinfeld and Friends, for example, but, you know, of course, I heard a lot about it. And when I was thinking about retiring, I thought, well, what would I like to do? I do like to teach because I've been teaching this seminar together with uh, Scott McDonald and David Potrack. I really enjoyed that at the Columbia University. So I said, well, wouldn't it be fun to do a seminar on program research because, you know, uh, the academics seem to me are too much focused on thinking about television as something that influences society. But my experience is that what really goes on is that program research is trying to find the programs that fit the audience, that the audience wants to see, that the influence goes the other way, which is that the audience sort of to a large extent, determines what gets on the air. So I got all the all the pilot research and, and the studies for Friends and Seinfeld. And, and one of the most interesting things to me was what you just alluded to was that, that Seinfeld did mediocre. It was a pretty poor test of the pilots. And that's what everybody talks about. However, what is not widely known and what don't talk about this, that internally, the program researchers were very uncomfortable with the results and were telling management that they really didn't feel that that was really reflecting, was really, that it wasn't really good research because they felt that there was something going on that the audience wasn't quite used to, but that there was real potential. And they made a recommendation. And the recommendation was that the show could really be improved by adding a female character. Because the pilot does not have Elaine. And the rest is history, right? <laughs> so this was a rare instance where the uh, creators 
maybe listen to the research or maybe they kind of felt themselves that that would be a good thing. But yeah, so the research actually, I think, got it right. It's it's such a great story, though, because, again, it's it's like the myth out there, you know, about Seinfeld being a great example of why you don't want research, when in actual fact, it's exactly the opposite. <laughs> Horst, you talked earlier about the DVR threat. I know that was a big instigator to the shift to C3, for example. I know that that got a lot of attention in its day. And, I'm, and I know that that got a lot of attention with you guys at NBC, and it led you down a path that ultimately took you into the world of neuro. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how it was that the, that the DVR work you were doing ultimately took you down the neuro path. Yeah, that, that I think really is an interesting story because the DVR threat was a really, really serious one. There was sort of a consensus in the industry Again, based on sort of very superficial research that because people said they hated commercials, that they would act on that and go through the effort of recording shows and skipping over the commercials and what have you, and that nobody would watch the commercials anymore, and that that would basically destroy the whole economic basis for television. So I had a DVR. And shame on me, I was sometimes forward through the commercials. And I noticed that when I did, I was really paying attention to the TV because I want to be sure that I was not going too far and really resume when the program restarted. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm really paying a lot of attention to the TV while fast forwarding. And I'm sort of also monitoring what kind of commercials are on. And I sometimes find myself stopping because I'm seeing a movie commercial that looks really interesting or some other stuff. And I was wondering if that's typical. And if that's typical, then huh? how can we sort of find out? Well, it turns out that, you know, at the time, there were these guys who were talking about neuroscience and that they could look into people's brains and really find out what people are thinking. Well, you could see I would be receptive to something like that because I had frequently complained that so many services and so much research is superficial and that people very often do not actually do what they say they will. And we also found that even though people say they hated commercials, 75% said in the survey, that it was a fair price to pay for commercials. And if you looked at the ratings, well, there was a drop during the commercials, but it wasn't really all that great. So most people didn't actually flip the station when the commercial came on. So I heard about these guys in Boston who were doing this research. And so I took the train to Boston to investigate. And I met the Dr. Carl Marcy, who had a medical background. And we had an NBC program, and he wired me up and put me in front of the TV and had me watch. And then he showed me my pulse and my heartbeat and, I guess, galvanic skin response afterwards. And he was just telling me basically what my reactions were. 
And he said, but you were kind of like watching the program, you know, it's sort of, and then when the commercials, uh, and you don't really like that program very much, do you? Yeah, I said, but he said, later on, you got into it a little bit more. Yeah, I said, that's true, that's true. But now what about the commercials? Well, you know, during the commercials when you were fast forwarding, this is what's going on and your eyes were still on the commercials and looking at the screen and stuff like that. And, and then he said, you know, Horst, look at your heartbeat there. Have you seen your cardiologist? Because you have like an extra heartbeat. And I looked at him and said, yeah, I have. And he said, I shouldn't worry about it. And then I thought to myself, we're going to hire this guy. If he can diagnose my irregular heartbeat, he knows what he's doing. So what did we do? We did a study and we showed with heat maps that while people were fast forwarding the commercials, their eyes were trained on the TV and they're following what was going on. So we had a really nice heat map of uh, people on bikes rolling down the hill and you could see the heat map, the eyes following them, even in fast forward. Now, mind you, the fast forward wasn't as fast as most of it is today, but still. And then at the end, we found that uh, if the logo was in the middle, people would focus on the logos while the commercials were being fast forwarded. And we did a recall study and we found that recall was about a third. So compared to, to watching live, and again, in a, in a living room setting where people can do what they want, the recall was sort of like a third. And we talked to advertisers about it, said, and it was covered in the Wall Street Journal and stuff. It was a lot of resonance. And our advice to advertisers was make your commercials DVR proof, not too many cuts, clear messages, clear lines, clear videos, and everything important has to be in the middle. Make sure your logo and your product shows up in the middle of the screen. And it helped a little bit. And well, that was, that was quite an experience. And so we, I kind of was convinced that neuro, eye tracking, all these other measures really were a valuable tool and would really help us to gain new understanding and also showed us really much better what people were really doing than what they claimed they were doing. Because obviously, again, back, getting back to one of my favorite topics, which by the way was the topic of my dissertation and my diploma, is social desirability. You do not appear very smart if you say, oh, I love commercials. Oh, I watch them all the time. Oh, I waste my time by watching entire seven-minute commercial blocks with great attention. Well, who's going to admit to that, right? When in reality, lots of people are sitting on the couch and being just very, very happy and relaxed and wasting their time and, and relaxing and eating chips and, and, you know, cuddling with their dogs or friends and what partners I'm in and so on. So, again, I was convinced about the value of neuroscience and then started working with others. And when I came to the ARF, that became my first big project. And you know, know all about that. Yeah, it's, it's a good thing you mentioned that, Horace. We've collaborated together in a lot of different ways, both in my academic and industry role, both at your time at, at NBC and at the ARF. But I think our deepest interaction really was our collaboration together on the Neurostandards Project. Just to give the audience a little bit of background, 
in 2011, it was a little bit like it is today in the attention sphere. There were a lot of vendors coming out with very bold claims, very radical claims about how they could read your mind and understand everything about what was happening. And the, the clients, of course, don't have backgrounds in neuroscience. So they're getting these claims that are being made and they needed to be able to evaluate whether these claims were legitimate or not. At, I think it was the 2010 ARF conference, I had a keynote spot there. And in my presentation, I made a call to the ARF that they need to validate these neuro methods. There needs to be some process. And what started then was this very long process of building an academic panel of the top scholars in the world in the kind of like neurospace related to, you know, media content, you know, people like Annie Lang, Chris Chabri, Patrick Barwise, I mean, really, really a five-star blue ribbon academic group of experts. And then what we did is we got these experts reviewing through, you know, under NDA, reviewing the research that these neuro vendors at the time did against the same set of eight ads. So everybody had to use whatever their methods were to evaluate these ads and then prepare their reports. And then the panel reviewed that work and then gave some commentary basically on the validity of the approaches that they had adopted. And that's that was really your first gig at the ARF. Uh, is that right, uh, Horst? Oh, yeah, it was. And, and it worked perfectly because, you know, I had this, this experience with uh, Neuro at the same time, you know, I mentioned this before, and very committed to research quality and, and um, uh, you know, sort of critical uh, bad research. And so that was always a uh, priority for me. And so the task of sorting through this and really identifying the best methods and the best practices was something that was really interesting and important to me. And it was a great process. And you just described it really well. And of course, you had a big, big role in it, and, and with your experience, were contributing a lot there. And I think the outcome was really, really positive because we were able to really give good information and help to develop best practices. And the experience is now, right at this very moment, sort of useful for the ARF in a very similar process that you just mentioned with regard to attention metrics where you have the very similar kind of situation where various vendors are using a term that the practitioners will understand, namely attention. Just as 10 years ago, they were saying engagement, right? And so different methods, measuring different things, calling it the same thing. And so we, we are planning this very similar process and again, uh, is to inform the industry to establish better practices and therefore help develop better tools. Because just as neuro, I think, is a better tool compared to, let's say, surveys in, in most cases for most purposes, a good measure of, uh, of meaningful attention, of attention that leads to positive uh, outcomes, is something that certainly is valuable for the industry. And if it can be done in a scalable form, is better than just a pure exposure measure than what you might get from Nielsen. But we'll, we'll see how this particular process uh, develops. But the uh, neuroscience process, I think, was really very valuable. And 
but I think I could throw the question, if you don't mind, you know, back, back at you, Dwayne. You agree with that? I, 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 were you happy with the whole process and, and what oh, came out Oh, Neurostandards was great. Neurostandards oh, okay. really cleaned up the industry. You know, there were two major players who, the two market leaders who didn't participate in the Neurostandards initiative. One of them was out of business three months later. The other one got acquired by a larger company. That process had started before Neurostandards, but it actually took many years for the stigma of them not participating to evaporate. That, that company that acquired them would have been much better off starting from scratch than acquiring that company. It hurt them a lot because of the stigma that they had. Mm -hmm. So not participating in the Neurostandards was the kiss of death for the organizations that chose not to do it. So, and I, I think the biggest contribution horse that came out of it was that for the first time, clients knew what questions to ask. So growing out of the neurostandards were the kinds of things they should be asking. And in particular, you know, most of these vendors then, and to be honest, even today operated behind, you know, black box technology and and mm -hmm. yeah. a lot of clients didn't didn't like that. And it hurt the businesses that did that because clients began demanding more transparency because of the kinds of findings that had come out of neurostandards. So it, it, it definitely shaped the industry. It cleaned up the industry for a while. I think the industry has slipped back into, you know, some pretty sloppy practices. But for a while there, I think it had a very dramatic impact on the industry. You know, there's always the, the, the tension between uh, doing something uh, scalable at lower cost and, and research quality. And, you know, we, we have to, I think we, we want to make an effort to make sure that the cost pressures and the pressures to do something at lower cost do not overwhelm the uh, quality mandate. Because I think if you do something poorly, you're actually wasting your money. And that's more expensive than doing good research that costs a little bit more. So true. You know, we should fill the audience in on some of the backstage drama around neurostandards because there was so much of that. And it was very funny. I remember the, the year that we came out with the neurostandards results, there was one session at the RF conference where a dispute between two of the neurofenders got so intense that security had to physically come and remove one of the neurofenders from the room. The only time in my career I've seen anything even remotely like that. <laughs> but let's be sure we tell your, your audience there was no blood. <laughs> That's only because of the research that you had done in years earlier on violence. <laughs> there was some drama. Uh, the other thing I think that, you know, again, it's a good story for us to tell because, you know, people don't know all the backstage drama, but I had talked about these two companies, you know, that didn't participate. And the largest of those companies was a, a, a real force in the industry at the time. And they had refused to participate in the Neurostandards project. But then what they did is at the ARF conference, they bought the back cover of the ARF program, you know, that's distributed, the paper program. And they announced on that their own neurostandards initiative, and they had their own neurostandards white paper that they were circulating. So there were two neurostandards 
papers that were circulating at the same time. There was the ARFs and there was this company. So I, I, I had to stand up from stage during my presentation and clarify that the Neural Standards Project had nothing to do with the ARF. And, and they're, the, the way that they they engaged in a lot of that kind of those kinds of tactics to kind of like you know yeah. get the market thinking that they were more legitimate than they really were those were fun times Horst. yeah well we hope we're going to avoid that in the attention project so far we're getting a lot of really positive response and i think that a lot of the companies who are in, involved in this measurement think that they're doing a good thing and want to participate to show that they are doing doing good work. The, the black box problem remains because I think we have to allow for, for that issue to be real. What I mean by that is that for a vendor who has a certain way of analyzing data and, and so on, to lay that out 100% openly, yeah. uh, there is a fear that somebody else could just copy that. And so there's that problem we have to uh, solve. Because as you said earlier, we got to be sure that vendors do not hide between the black box, but reveal enough information to make a judgment, uh, a solid judgment over their work. It's a great initiative. Um, there's no question that there are a lot of claims that are being made today about all kinds of new tools that can do amazing things. And that's great. That's fine. But what you haven't seen in the market is proper validation. You know, saying that somebody's your customer and that they've come back to do repeat business is not validation. People in the market need to know that the measure is actually measuring what people think it's measuring. And that's where the validation comes in. And so the work that the ARF is doing in this space is absolutely hugely valuable in, in terms of helping advance the market going forward. What I find personally very interesting in, in this uh, context is the definition of attention and how attention actually works. And, you know, I guess one could talk a whole hour about that, but, you know, in a nutshell, uh, I would say that it's a very, very complex and, if you want, ambiguous concept but what seems to be clear is that not all what is usually referred to as attention leads to memory, cognition, and outcomes in terms of purchase intention, brand, opinion, and, and, and purchases. So that there has to be something beyond the gaze, beyond it's just looking at something. And we have seen terms like engaged attention and positive attention. Somebody has actually mentioned the example of attention to avoid seeing something like when you're watching the screen with the DVR, wanting to see when the program restarts, expressing the hypothesis that there is a qualitative difference between looking at the screen because you want to see what's going on and looking at the screen because you want to see what's next or what to avoid. And while we have documented that there's some residual memory can be just from exposure, just from looking at something, there's, of course, a huge qualitative difference. And how to conceptualize that and how to measure that, I think, is a really interesting question that we're going to address. So it's another great project. And, and by the way, uh, just to be clear, I went off, retired from NBC. I'm part-time at the ARF. I'm not full-time. 
So I'm semi-retired, but I'm still much too old to still be working, I think. But the stuff is so damned interesting, you know? And you've you've always, always been a creature of discovery. Different. You're always motivated by that that quest for discovery. And, uh, and, yeah, and, and I want to know how things work. And I've always been sort of fascinating by understanding how things work and why they work and how people react. Once you go to advertising, once you got to content movies. I often watch movies that make hundred million dollars, not because I'm interested in them, but just to try to figure out why do people like this stuff? And I can never figure out some of the propaganda, why it's successful, but that's a different topic. It's the complexity of, of, of people. The, the one thing you learn in research yeah. is just how incredibly complex people really are. And contradictory and what have you. Yeah, absolutely. So Horst, 40 years at NBC, 11 years semi-retired, but part-time at the ARF through some amazing initiatives over the years. What advice would you give to the new generation of researchers coming into the industry? One issue that I've focused on for a very, very long time is research quality and accuracy and critical analysis of what you do and the research that you do. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of research that has been done over the last 50, 60, 70 years that may look old fashioned and it's been done in a different world, but still has very, very important insights on how to do research well, how to do analyses well. So examples I would, I would choose are, for example, the importance of recognizing social desirability that survey questions can mislead in terms of getting answers that people give because they want to look good. And also analyses that are done with simple demographics very often are not optimal, that there are other predictors of behavior which are much more important than standard demographics. So more care in research, more critical analysis of the research. Be careful, especially if you like the results of the study, Make sure that you did not consciously or unconsciously influence the research that you did because you were hoping for a certain outcome. Horace Dip, what a career. Thank you so much. You're a true legend. Thank you so much for joining us on Legends of Media Research today. Well, thank you. My pleasure. And of course, I want to thank you, our audience, for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe or follow this podcast series so you won't miss a single episode. And don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about it. And if you'd like to learn more about media science, stick around after the podcast to hear more. Otherwise, I'm media science CEO, Dr. Dwayne Varon, thanking you for joining us today. I look forward to joining you again next time on Legends of Media Research. Almost every major innovation in the TV advertising industry over the course of the past decade was first tested by media science researchers. Whether you're talking about video ads on mobile phones or limited interruption ad pods or program context effects or brand integrations or pause ads or picture-in-picture -picture ads or six-second ads or interactive ad formats. <laughs> I mean, the list goes on and on. All were first tested by Media Science. Media Science is the leader in media innovation research.
So when you're looking for media or advertising innovation research, collaborate with Media Science. Learn more at mediascience.com.